This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Zen teacher Brad Warner about his latest book, The Other Side of Nothing, The Zen Ethics of Time, Space, and Being, published this year by New World Library. In the West, Zen Buddhism has a reputation for paradoxes that defy logic. In particular, the Buddhist concept of non-duality, the realization that everything in the universe forms a single, integrated whole, is especially difficult to grasp. In The Other Side of Nothing, Brad Warner untangles the mystery and explains non-duality in plain English. To Warner, this is not just a philosophical problem. Non-duality forms the bedrock of Zen ethics, and once we comprehend it, many of the perplexing aspects of Zen suddenly make sense. Drawing on decades of Zen practice, he traces the interlocking relationship between Zen metaphysics and ethics, showing how a true understanding of reality and the ultimate unity of all things instills in us a sense of responsibility for the welfare of all beings. When we realize that our feelings of separateness from others is illusory, we have no desire to harm any creature. Warner ultimately presents an expansive overview of the Zen ethos that will give beginners and experts alike a deep understanding of one of the world's most enduring spiritual traditions. Brad Warner is also the author of numerous titles, including Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen, Don't Be a Jerk, and Hardcore Zen. A Soto Zen teacher, he is also a punk bassist, filmmaker, and popular blogger who leads workshops and retreats around the world. In addition to his books, his writings appear in Lion's Roar, Tricycle, Buddha Dharma, and Alternative Press. He also hosts the Hardcore Zen podcast and talks about Zen almost every day on his YouTube channel. Visit him online at www.hardcorezen.info. Brad Warner, welcome back to the Mystical Positivist. <laughs> Thanks. That was our, our second welcome back. That's right. Yes, you've been on the show twice before. This time we're going to focus um, on your latest book, The Other Side of Nothing, The Zen Ethics of Time, Space, and Being. But first, we wanted to invite you to just update our listeners who have listened to those uh, shows before on what's been going on with you. Well, I, I got married and I moved out of Los Angeles to Upland, California, which is about 40 miles east of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are two big things. And I'm continuing to do uh, what I always do, which is write books and then uh, go around and, and talk about them. Uh, I'm set to go to Europe in September, which is something uh, that I do every year, uh, pretty much. Um, and uh, so I'm going to go to Finland, England, France, and uh, Germany this time. And possibly the Netherlands. Uh, we're talking about that. Sounds like a busy schedule. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, it's, it's what I do. And it's just become kind of almost a routine for me, which is weird because uh, 
that shouldn't be routine to do that. I think <laughs> most people do that. Well, the routine part that you mentioned, which also comes up in the book several at several points, I think you you say this is this is what I do is is write like this and um, put that out there, and um, and I and Stuart and I have each read uh, a couple of your previous books. Um, Don't be a jerk, and um, what was the other one? Uh, letters to a, uh, oh, letters to a dead friend about Zen, yeah. right? Uh, which I, both of which I liked. I like this one better. It's a longer book, which is it interesting is to me. And and um, I'm wondering if you have something to say about that fact before we get into the content. Well, yeah, it, it sort of even surprised me how long it was. I've, I've done this. I don't know how other writers work because I don't really know any in person but if I've written books that I thought were long there's a book I I put out a few years ago called There Is No God and He's Always With You which I in my mind was like a big doorstep of you know doorstop whatever you know like a big mm-hmm. brick of a book and when I got it back from when New World Library printed up the copies and I got it I was like whoa this is really <laughs> it's like this little thin book uh, but this one surprised me as being so long. I think because of what I was trying to do turned out to be more complicated than I thought it was or thought it would be because I, I wanted to write a book about ethics and I realized after writing some stuff about Buddhist ethics that you really have to understand non-duality to understand where Buddhist ethics come from because they don't they don't come from the same place I think that most religious ethical systems seem to come from uh, which is why they're they're so strange people don't kind of understand the the strange aspect of Buddhist ethics which is kind of my teacher phrased it as no rule is our rule but um, it's it's like saying there there is a rule but it's also there's no rule (laughs) So, right. and, and that's hard to understand because that sounds like a non sequitur. But it, it's really there is a logic to saying things like that. Yeah, that that was actually one of the aspects of this book that struck me that you have to give a ground of the, the Buddhist teaching and the Buddhist practice and the Buddhist um, metaphysical system in order to understand the ethics, and you know with. Uh, deistic religions, you don't have to do that as much because it, it, the buck stops with God. You know, God said, "Do this, and uh, everything will be well." Whereas, with a system where there's no God in the way that theistic religions normally uh, construct a God, you don't get that out. So you, so then, what are the, uh, uh, what's the purpose of the ethics? Well, you know, why are people doing what they're doing? And yeah, that's the problem. A lot of uh, that that. And because I think in in a lot of a lot of times in the West, they're kind of these two things are taught separately. So people don't understand. It, it's sort of like, well, if that's what you believe, then why not just do whatever the heck you want? You know, because you don't you don't believe that there's a god who's going to punish you. Some Buddhists, I, I think probably the majority of Buddhists, believe in in karma in the sense. Well, I think. Pretty, I think that's pretty universal among Buddhists to believe in karma, but there are the, the sort of major Buddhist belief is to believe in reincarnation as part of the karmic system that you, you know get reincarnated. So then you could say, well, the reason for being good is you don't want to get a bad 
incarnation in your next life. I mean, that you know, that's a sort of a simplified answer, but that's kind of the answer you get a lot of times. My teacher, uh, my main teacher, Mishima Roshi, was he. He didn't like to talk about reincarnation. He 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 would tell people, "Oh, this is just a, a myth from Hinduism that got uh, you know grafted on to to Buddhism and doesn't mean anything." I I probably shouldn't say this, but he's he's dead now, so maybe I can maybe I can uh, say this. I, I found out in in conversations with him that his his actual point of view was a little more nuanced than what he put out to the public. But I think there was a reason for putting it out to the public like that, which is that he found, like a lot of people find, that as soon as you introduce reincarnation into the game, that there's a certain segment of the audience for whom that's all they ever want to hear about, you know, and, mm-hmm. and they, they just kind of grab onto that and, and run with it. So his solution to that problem was to just just cut you off at the pass and just deny it but the, so so if, and and he's not the only one who does this i've run across other buddhist teachers who do this but um if you do that and you don't even have reincarnation then why be ethical so so why is there this strong emphasis in buddhism on ethics the, the other reason for writing the book is i i found um depending on which sort of version of buddhism you're listening to uh, sometimes the ethics doesn't get included at all but it's really really a strong part of the the buddhist thing <laughs> i don't know what to say you know but buddhism is is this ethical system and so why do you have this really strong emphasis on ethics when you have this religion without a god and that's sort of what i set out to answer and it took me 300 and 58 pages or something like that to try to come up with, with at least my answer to it to that to that question so so you you do you just pointed out that there are some uh, 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 Buddhists who um, who don't foreground ethics is, is uh, you didn't put it that way but but I'm sort of trying to paraphrase part of what you part of what you just said so um, I'm wondering if you if you see those folks as primarily influenced by Western philosophical or religious systems, or is that more more generally present across the spectrum for Buddhists? Yeah, I wasn't really thinking about, you know, officially recognized Buddhist teachers as as not presenting ethics, because I think that's pretty across the board. I'm just trying to think who, who, I, who I've heard talk, but pretty much across the board, they, the, the Buddhist teachers I've encountered talk about that. But then there's a sort of pop culture Buddhism out there mm-hmm. that, that's more interested in the, you know, in the fun stuff, like reincarnation or like uh, the, the Buddhist cosmology and, and things like that, and they aren't so interested in the in that. And I would say that's kind of a, a more westernized approach to it, because that's, you know, that's more fun to, to talk about, you know, this cosmic sort of stuff. Even I find that more interesting to talk about than ethics <laughs> Because ethics is like, just do the right thing. And there's this famous old story 
wish I could remember which master this is usually attributed to, but uh, the student comes up to the master and says, what's the, what's the point? And this, this student is actually a very learned person who's supposed to be a scholar of things. And he says to, to this teacher, what's the point of, of Buddhism? What's the most important teaching? And the teacher says, just do right and avoid doing wrong. And this guy says, well, even a three-year-old child could say that. And he says, the master says, well, yeah, even a three-year-old child can say it, but sometimes even an 80-year-old master, which I assume he's referring to himself, has trouble doing it. So, and, and, and Dogen even says that. I mean, that's why that book I put out a few years ago was called Don't Be a Jerk, because he has that uh, chapter called Shoaku Makusa in Shobo Genzo, in which he says basically the same thing, that the most important teaching in all of Buddhism is avoid doing wrong, which I paraphrased as don't be a jerk, but um, makusa is a kind of old, very old way of saying avoid doing evil. Aku, yeah. is, aku is usually translated as evil. <clears throat> Actually, I, I um, appreciate it at the time and this comes up in uh, this book because uh, you have a chapter called Don't Be a Jerk. Um, there's a power in the way you paraphrase it, which is, I think, also gets to this uh, this question of Buddhist ethics, which is to say, do the right thing, or and don't do the wrong thing, or uh, sort of hits hits me in my head. Don't be yeah. a jerk. Hits me in my heart, or maybe even lower, uh, <laughs> and um, and that's a theme that I guess I, I find that was running through your book, which is that, you know, there's this challenge of taking these systems and having an intellectual understanding, and that's very different from actually embodying it and living it. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's a that's been a, a something I've been working on is trying to, you know, I don't want to dumb it down, but I do want to... Uh, put it across in a way I'm kind of putting it across in every one of my books in the way I understood it, which which sometimes I feel a little slightly I don't know, guilty about or something because I, I don't I'm not that much of an intellectual, you know, I went to I did a bachelor's degree, so you know, at least I, you know, I got that far but I before I started writing Buddhist Books. Uh, my both of my teachers encouraged me to to do that to write about Buddhism, and my sort of initial response to that was I can't write about Buddhism because I'd seen the kind of books that were out there about Buddhism and they were very intellectual, uh, heady sort of books. And and I enjoyed reading those books, but I thought I can't I can't write anything like this. And so when I did sit down and attempt to write Buddhism as I understood it, it came it came out in this you know, in this way that it does, you know, that, that people reading my books are kind of familiar with by now, I suppose, but it's this sort of blah, you know, just very very direct sort of way, you know, don't be a jerk and things like that. Because that's the way I understood it. And I didn't know if there would be an audience for that, you know, when I started writing this stuff, I, I actually assumed there wouldn't be, uh, because because I, I thought, well, that's you know, there's a way that there's already a well-established way of talking about this stuff, and what I'm doing is not it. Um, so um, 
so it all just kind of comes out uh, like that and I what I usually do uh, uh, what I do a lot of these days when I'm writing is try to point readers in the direction of okay if you if you understand it the way I'm saying it, go check out the original sources and get and get a better translation, you know, or get a get a more academic translation too. Uh, don't just go by how I'm expressing it because, I, you know, I think uh, even though I'm I'm fairly confident in the way I express it, I, I can I can also see where it could be taken wrongly, you know. Um, and where it has been taken wrongly occasionally by people. I see people every once in a while on the Internet who seem to be trying to imitate my style, but they, they come across as kind of bludgeoning the audience. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like going, oh, is that what I sound like? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I, I, you know, my, uh, um, my sense of how you come across is, is, is it's more... Direct. I guess the analogy I would use because you you um, uh, bring up. I guess you recently discovered Nisargadatta Maharaj uh, in the mm-hmm. course of writing this book, and you know when you read a book like I Am That, there's an electricity there because he's very plain spoken. I mean, this yeah. is a guy. This is a guy who sold uh, beady cigarettes. You know, downstairs and upstairs, he had this uh, darshan hall that uh, people would come to from all over the world. But his yeah, lang his language is very direct. Yeah. And and it doesn't have you know, but if you read an Advaita Vedanta academic piece, you know, you know, you'll probably fall asleep, you know, because there's these these wonderful Sanskrit words and these wonderful concepts and things like that. But it doesn't have the electricity that his direct kind of you could call it bludgeoning, but I think he's just kind of repeating the same point over and over again yeah. in lots of different ways for people. Well, yeah, I, and I, and 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 I'm glad you brought him up because he, he's interesting. I'm I. I came across him about you know three or four years ago. Somebody suggested actually my first Zen teacher. I was saying, Do you know any good books about Advaita Vedanta? And he said, Oh, there's this book called I Am That that a lot of people like. And I was like, Okay, so got myself a copy, and I was just really blown away by it. And and it's sort of an interesting trajectory because actually I talk about this in in, in the new book, in the other side of nothing. When I first got interested in Eastern philosophies, what I wanted to study was, I didn't know it was called Advaita Vedanta, but that's what I wanted to study. You know, I I realized that now. I was looking for some kind of a Hindu-based system because I'd grown up uh, partly in Africa um, Mm. when I was uh, between 7 and 11 years old, or maybe 6 and 11. I know I was 11 when we came back, but my family lived in Nairobi, in Kenya. And I guess a lot of people don't know this who, who haven't lived there, but there's a huge Indian population in that part of Africa, in East Africa. So so I'd seen that around, and, and my dad had a, a close friend who was Indian, and uh, there were just Indian people all over the place who I'd talked to now and then. And I saw their religious iconography and, and all this stuff and, and, and their food. <laughs> You know, I was like, you know, I'd I'd, been, I'd lived in Akron, Ohio before that, and I I'd never tasted a samosa before. And I was like, oh my god, <laughs> Who, who's been hiding this stuff from me? Um, but uh, but I wanted to study something Indian, and not being able to find that, I took a class at uh, Kent State University called Zen Buddhism, which I thought, well, that's you know as close as I'm going to get because they didn't have any courses uh, on offer at the time about uh, any Hindu philosophy. So it's kind of weird. I, I wonder sometimes what would have happened if I'd come across Nisargadatta Maharaj 
uh, initially. And sometimes I think, well, I might have just not bothered, you know, <laughs> because because he says it so directly, like you mentioned. And he was this guy who yeah, ran a cigarette shop and then upstairs. And, and uh, you can go on YouTube now and see a few, you know, a few people must have shot film. He died in, what, 1981 or something yeah, like 81. that? So, you know, so videotape and film existed during his lifetime and a few people... But he, I guess he wasn't that famous, but a few people managed to, to tape some of him. And, and even not, not understanding him, he, he comes across almost, you know, like a, a punk rock, <laughs> you know, uh, he, master or something. You know, he's kind of yelling and being very, you know, not yeah, taking guff from anybody. Yeah, a number of uh, Western teachers. I think Jack Cornfield actually uh, sat with him at one point. Oh, yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a few people who... Uh, uh, saw him and then, you know, came back to the West and had various careers, many of them Buddhists, that uh, were strongly influenced. So, yeah, it's interesting that, that, you know, he's just such a, a character and uh, and he obviously had no interest in becoming famous, you know, he never expanded beyond that little room he had upstairs from the cigarette shop. Uh, never set up an ashram or... or courted fame at all it's it's really uh, inspiring i think yeah so but i want to get back to a comment that you made just a moment ago um about the uh, you 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 want to encourage people who read you to check out original material or source material or 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 other other translations of of source material that that sort of thing and 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 I just wanted to mention in response to that was um, it has nothing to do with how long the book is. I don't think that's that's more what you were getting at before, how how it evolved to have to go into non-duality um, to be able to source where Buddhist ethics come from. Mm-hmm. But but reading the book. And I don't know if this is true, and, I, and I'm, the reason I'm bringing it up is I'm, I'm, I'm going to run it back past you. I get more of an impression that you have more of that, that I'm putting this, I'm, I'm mentioning this teacher, or I'm mentioning this text, or I'm mentioning so that other people can, can check it out. I don't remember that as much in the previous two books of yours that I read. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's well. It's it's not so much in letters to a dead friend about Zen, but I think the two Dogen books. I keep constantly saying, "Well, don't just go by my." I did two books of. In case the listeners don't know, I did two books where I paraphrased Dogen, who was a um, mm-hmm. well, a 13th century Japanese master who's been pretty much my main influence in in doing what I do, and I, I just paraphrased him. You know, I. I What's the, the worst one was uh, the Mountains and Waters Sutra. I called the Beer and Doritos Sutra. Explained <laughs> <laughs> in the in the text why I I chose that title for it. And, but um, you know, don't go by that. You know, go go look up the original source. And, and I guess I've done it more um, this time because. Uh, but I understand. You know, I, I get a lot of emails and different sort of communications from people who, who read me or watch my YouTube videos, and I can kind of get a sense of, of who a lot of my audience are. And at first, 
when I, when, I, when Hardcore Zen came out, my first book in 2003, I assumed that my audience would be younger people. And that's not necessarily the, the case. My, my favorite story about that is I, uh, one of the, I don't know if it was the very first time I went out side of where I lived to go give a talk about Hardcore Zen. It was, it was among the first five times, at, at least, so very early on. I get to the venue and there's these two women sitting in front who, who I think they're prob- they were probably about the age that I am now, but they seemed really old <laughs> to me at the time, you know. Uh, and uh, and I thought, oh my gosh, these these poor ladies, they they heard there was a Buddhist lecture and now they've got me, you know. And I I felt kind of bad about it, and so I gave the talk and just talked the way I, I had planned to and. At the end of the at the end of the talk, there was a book signing, and those women who sat up front they were the first people on online or in line uh, to talk to me, and uh, and they were just gushing about how much they had loved this this book, you know. So I I I pictured this you know young audience, but it wasn't necessarily true. And I, I think the common denominator is not age, but a kind of the the approach to it is people who are deeply interested in this stuff but they just you know they just can't deal with the the way it's it's usually presented you know that sort of you know either the very intellectual approach or the very sort of nice flowery approach but both of which i think are valid you know i'm not yeah. trying to to put that down and say that's you know bad it, it works for some people you know um i i i, I sometimes in my book sort of poke fun at that at that sort of you know the master who stands up and talks in the measured tones and says the wonderful things but i think some of those guys are great you know <laughs> um it's just it's just that a lot of a lot of people don't have uh, patience for that sort of thing you know it's like you, i can't sit and listen to you, you know? yeah but there's a couple of things that come up in your books your your dogan books it comes up in the other side of nothing you know one is that um, you show different translations side right. by side of right. the same material, and it becomes very clear very quickly that uh, you can't really get it unless you can read the original medieval Japanese. You can't really get it uh, from the uh, translators or one translator because there's a lot of subjectivity in that. But the other thing that I think is interesting is uh, um, I don't know if you're familiar with James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake but it's this really cryptic novel that has all these in references to all sorts of things and so scholars spend careers trying to unpack it because uh, you know any given line is so so thick with references to things that no one knows that yeah. it's very lyrical but it's also incomprehensible unless you have a code book and yeah. in a way, there's a lot of the imagery that Dogen uses, you know, because I know this when I first would read Dogen, it's like, I don't get any of this. Uh, yeah. uh, and then when you start explaining, like, and you do a good job of this in the book, oh, this, this particular image refers to this story, or this image refers to that story. And then, and then you realize what Dogen's doing is he's writing for you know an audience that actually knows all you know has all these references and yeah. then and then he's just riffing uh like a jazz player you know and it's uh all this stuff comes together and has a very powerful effect but it's hard to get into that unless you have that backdrop 
Yeah. And so, and so you, you provide that. So that's the other thing you do. It's not just, um, uh, it's not just paraphrasing or being cute or using contemporary language. It's also just providing a context in which to understand where this piece was coming from. And I think, I think that's another reason why I find your, your particular gloss on Dogen very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, um, that's that's true and and yeah you said kind of what i would <laughs> you kind of took my response away from me now but it's sort of like <laughs> that that is he there is a i haven't read joyce myself but i'm i'm familiar with with what you talked about what, what you said about him and um and i think dogan is similar in 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 a lot of ways because he is he is just Full of references that that we're not going to get, and and you have to kind of decode the references, and that's part of, you know, for a lot of people that's the fun of it, but for a lot of people that just makes the whole thing really tedious because you want to get to the to the meat of the thing, and that you know part of my background is I spent years living in Japan, and one of my main jobs I worked for a television and film production company founded by the guy who invented Godzilla. And part of my job, or part really a, a major part of my job, was writing publicity materials for the company. And basically, I would get something written in Japanese that was how they were public, publicizing this particular show to for Japanese audiences. And and they'd say, you know, do do this. And I'd look at it and go, well, yeah, this this contains tons of references that nobody outside of japan is going to get and and the Jap- japanese who write this stuff they don't realize that you know they don't they don't understand that they're they're throwing in a, a, a ton of references that that people outside of japan aren't going to get so i would have to try to come up with some analogous cultural touchstone or something like that you know and i was doing this all the time and it it turned out to be great training for what I ended up doing, you know, in in the in Buddhism because it's it's the same. Sorry, that's my dog. It's the same sort of thing um, of of trying to decode these references and and you, like I I think I said this earlier. I don't want to dumb it down, you know. I want to I want to keep the the meat of the thing. Ziggy, shh. I want to keep the meat of the thing going. But I don't want to. Uh, but I don't want to overwhelm the reader with a lot of references that, that they aren't going to understand. Ziggy, it's a, you know, That's it's, a, the it's fam- okay the because Ziggy Pup, Ziggy Pup is a, is a character in your book, so um, <laughs> That's true. Yeah, frequent, part of the book, fre- yes. fre- frequently mentioned. So, so uh, Ziggy should be in the interview. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe That's he knows. He knows it too. Don't right. don't, don't ignore me. <laughs> Yeah, I got I got Ziggy just about just about the time that uh, I embarked on writing the book. So we, we've had him in about two years now, or maybe a little more than two years. So just just at the start of writing this book, I got a I got a dog, and and yeah, you're right, the dog comes up a lot in the book. Um, well, it's it's sweet. Uh, it's so so we haven't really talked other than the intersection of non-duality and ethics. We haven't talked about the the specific stuff in the book. So I want to just, you know, point out what you're doing. You have 45 chapters plus an appendix. They're short, most of them. Um, And and you start off, you know, after you're sort of framing what 
what you're going to be doing in the book, you go through, you know, the, the, the way I always have it in my head, you, you phrase it differently, the Noble Eightfold Path and, and um, you know, the Heart Sutra, um, various other things. And then you get into the, into the ethics or I should say precepts, which yeah. are, are intended to embody the ethics for quite a, for quite a while and one of the one of the devices that you used and I'm bringing this up because your discussion of uh, the discussion you and Stuart just had about about uh, different translations which is uh, which is helpful when you when you do that because it really frames that that the, that the meaning of of some of the stuff you're talking about is not straightforward you know yeah. really really Smart people, uh, familiar with <laughs> Dogen or whatever, or whatever other text you're looking at, say very, you know, translated. Very, very In some cases, it's actually they say the opposite thing. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, but 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 then you in the I think it's especially in the precepts chapters mm-hmm. where you. Um, you bring in different ways that the precepts are, are formulated by different Western teachers. And those are incredibly interesting to, uh, to me and revealing because here's something that's, I think Western people are inclined just because of the cultural context, at least, at least someone of my age. It's like, you're translating it through the through the lens of the Ten Commandments, or yeah. some or, or something like that. Yeah. And 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 what I was when I was reading those different the different formulations in English of the Buddhist precepts, I'm noticing that that a lot of those are are intended to I think uh, subvert. The connection to the Ten yeah. Commandments, or, or or at least Western ethical um, concepts. I, I'm wondering if you have a comment on that because I think it's an interesting point. Yeah, it could be. I, the I got all that stuff. Somebody years ago, somebody gave me this. It was a it was a document put together by I think the Soto Zen Buddhists Association, which is a, a group of American Soto Zen Buddhists, where they had done a conference of some kind about the precepts, and they gathered together every English language version of the precepts that they could find. So I used a lot of that in the book, and I tried to pick the ones that that had the the greatest sort of contrast from each other. Because if you go if you go through the list that they have, uh, you know, a lot of them are just the same thing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. But uh, a lot of them are are quite different, and there could be some of that because I think um, I tried to do this the last time I got interviewed about this book, where I can't remember uh, of the ten Buddhist precepts. I think depending on how you read them, I think six of them are more or less the same as the Ten Commandments. You know, there's mm-hmm. don't lie, don't steal, don't uh, don't commit adulteries even in there. Um, don't kill. There are some that are, that are different. But you're right, there is a tendency to go, to look at those and go, oh, it's just the Ten Commandments. Like, that's how I saw it um, when, I first, when I first came across it. I thought, oh, it's just the, it's the same thing. And there's a certain... Um, 
comfort in that, but then you, you don't, you know, you have to realize that there's also completely different ways of looking at it. And one of the things that my first teacher did when he taught the precepts, uh, this is Tim McCarthy, who, who I still keep in contact with, who was my first Zen teacher. He brought in what are called the, Bo- the Bodhidharma precepts or Bodhidharma's 10 precepts. And, and it was actually in that bit of research by the Soto Zen Buddhist Association that I found out that Bodhidharma probably didn't write Bodhidharma's 10 precepts. They seem to have come out of Tendai Buddhism, which is a Japanese version of esoteric Buddhism. It's actually the, uh, the kind of Buddhism that Dogen studied before he studied Zen, so he must have been familiar with this stuff. But uh, if you look at the, the Bodhidharma precepts, Bodhidharma being the the, uh, when did Bodhidharma exist? He's the guy who's usually credited with bringing uh, Zen Buddhism to China uh, yeah. from India. Right. And uh, and those versions of the precepts are are, are really weird. <laughs> you know, he's, uh, they saw, they all start out with self nature is mysteriously profound in the midst of. Uh, my favorite one is uh, that the no dwelling on past mistakes uh, just comes out no dwelling on past mistakes, but but most of them come out completely different you know he says the 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 truth of the what is it the truth of the precept of not killing is not to oh gosh i should be able to rattle this off but it's it's not to conceive of of life and death as being different or something like that i've forgotten now what it is um which is embarrassing but um so so those so having those when, when i first started studying it uh, was really useful because I because I could go okay it's like ten precepts but it's totally different from the from the ten precepts there's this whole other way of of understanding it and and I find a lot of the Western versions of the precepts um, I brought a few of them into the book that I thought were you know they're trying to almost think almost approach it in a legalistic way and trying to cover all their bases to to explain what they think. I'm doing an interview. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, they're 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 trying to get really detailed about what it means. Or uh, some of them I, I liked because they get very poetic. And there's this one weird one about the precept of not using alcohol that talks about you know who drops the cup and all this kind of uh, strange stuff. But yeah, I think a lot of a lot of Western teachers of this stuff, or a lot of even uh, Japanese teachers who come to the West, do try to make it clear that this is a, this is a different thing uh, from from the Ten Commandments. Which is not to say the Ten Commandments are bad or anything. It's just it's a well, different sort of approach. Well, it's, it's different. I mean, it's certainly different in that um, the Ten Commandments tend to be prescriptive. Uh, yeah. The I mean, in some sense, the precepts and the vows and the, the Eightfold Path are prescriptive in that, I mean, these were, a lot of these were created in monastic communities, and it was a little bit, you know, they evolved out of figuring out ways to do crowd control and how do you, how do you get yeah. people to, to work together. So there, there's some pragmatic aspects, but it, it felt like as you just, your way of describing it, and particularly the structure of the book is uh, these these recommendations are riding on top of this uh, undercurrent of non-duality, and 
There's there's a couple points about that that are, we want to get into in this discussion, but one of them is that you often come back to this uh, phrasing of breaking the uh, precepts um, are is like punching yourself in the face. Yeah. So, yeah. so maybe you could talk a little bit about you know to, to what extent is that uh, a useful model for understanding how this ethical system operates. Yeah, I, I I don't know. It's 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 another one of these cases of it's the way I tend to think of it. You know, before before I even wrote it down, that that was the way I thought of it for myself. And it does. I, I think when I first heard, I first heard these the Buddhist precepts when I was nineteen or twenty years old. And at that age, you know, you want to go out and, and have fun and do stuff. And to a certain extent, the the precepts sounded like, you know, trying to put a damper on your on your fun. You know, a lot of there's a lot of rules, you know, to follow. And and I was in the punk rock thing, and a lot of it was like, you know, we make our own rules, man. You know, that kind of approach. And so I saw it that way. As, as restrictions, but I, I've kind of, working with it for all these years, I, I don't see it as restrictive anymore so much as advice on how to have a decent life. And that's why that whole image of punching yourself in the face came up, because of this underlying aspect of the universe that is unified that is everything is a manifestation of one underlying something and you can't we, we think we can get ahead in life by doing things that you know enhance myself you know this is where i mean to take a a bad example like stealing you know you think you can go and get ahead by stealing some something from somebody else because then they don't have it but i have it now you know but if you understand the non-dualistic aspect of life what becomes clear is that is that you're only stealing from yourself you know there's there's nobody else to to steal from and the way this is often taught is sort of karma is going to get you, you know, like if I, if I steal from somebody else, then I'll create bad karma and something will be stolen from me later on. You know, this is sort of uh, the, the kind of dumbed, dumbed down way of understanding karma. And it's not, it's not that it's what you're doing at that moment that you steal is you are stealing from yourself. You're causing yourself pain and the the fact that you might not experience that pain initially is not doesn't mean it necessarily is delayed it means the it's the it means that the understanding that you have caused yourself pain might be delayed and that is that's on you <laughs> you know that you know that's your problem that you don't know that you just punched yourself in the face it's like you know maybe to continue that analogy it's like you punch yourself in the face and you're all bruised up but you don't feel it for you know the next 10 days and then suddenly you feel it and you're going ah but you didn't it's not because it happened later you you did it immediately in in the moment so 
and and I think for a lot of us, myself included, the coming to to understand that at first it requires a certain amount of faith. You know, this is this is something that is often not talked about in in Buddhism, at least in Western Buddhism, probably not in most sorts of Buddhism anywhere, is um, is faith. But it's a faith like uh, trust. My I, yeah. when I first encountered Tim McCarthy, I felt that this is a person I can trust. And when he said things that I didn't understand. I accepted them based on the fact that I didn't think he would lie to me. So there was a certain amount of, of faith involved there until it became clearer after doing a lot of practice that, oh, this, you know, it took years. It took like a, a decade or more of, of continuous practice before it just sort of went, you know, like hit me on the noggin and, and I went, oh, that's all true. You know, I'd sort of taken it as a matter of of belief before then and kind of accepted it. But um, then it just became abundantly clear. And then once it was abundantly clear, then I'm I'm like, well, I got to stop doing those things. You know, I have to stop doing things that that cause me harm. And, And so I think the ethical approach in Buddhism I don't think I put this in the book. I, I kept trying to put this because sometimes I think it's a, it's almost a form of selfishness in, in a sense, you know, a kind of a kind of positive form of selfishness when you realize that the only way you're going to have a decent life for yourself is just to be a decent person to everybody else. That's that's the only way it works. You know, there isn't there isn't another way. And you know, lots of people all over the world still keep trying to find that other way you know <laughs> that's what causes wars and terrible things and and stuff where you where you try to get ahead by harming somebody else and it's just not going to work well you and, and i feel like if humanity ever collectively comes to understand this then you know there's no stopping us after that but you know that's that's a ways off <laughs> well you remind me of uh, um in that discussion of um, our teacher uh, used to say that that the best sort of competition is one where people are trying to be nicer than the than the next guy to yeah. to other people, and that's a competition that that's actually that, that that can have positive impacts and positive effects. But, but when but, you said but, that, I thought about those the two cartoon chipmunks who were like, "After you, no, after you." <laughs> <laughs> And nothing, nothing gets done. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I also want to comment that you know you were saying that you know this uh, this uh, bodhisattva one mind precept. They all start with self nature is mysteriously profound, and then they go on to describe. You know, I'm I'm on the chapter I, I vow not to steal, which is the sim- the simple way to uh, formulate this precept. But then it goes on. Self-nature is mysteriously profound in the Dharma in which nothing can be attained. Not to give rise to the mind of attaining is called the precept of no stealing or robbing. You know, at first I I too uh, found that the circumlocution kind of 
uh, phraseology off-putting, but after oh, after reading it, you know, multiple times in all these precept chapters that you've got, it's like it's it makes total sense to say self nature is mysteriously profound because really, who knows what they're doing? We yeah. think we, we think we know what we're doing, but yeah. but starting there um, creates a creates a field within which something. A diff- the different formulation of I vow not to steal instead to go through this um, this apparent negation in the intervening thing from the start of the, uh, mysteriously profound a negation and then you get to no robbing and no stealing is yeah. really interesting because it, it kind of re- recapitulates the process you just described yourself going through over yeah. year, in years, over years of time. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a lot of those formulas. I think come out of that. You know, somebody's been working with this for years, and then they try to put it down in as succinct form as possible. But because it's so succinct, it it becomes you know, like you said, when you first encounter it, it's like whoa, what? <laughs> you know, that that's that's what it sounded like to me. I could I could feel something from the bodhisattva precepts and they really they they really impacted me a lot as a, as a young person but um, even though I could feel that there was something there that was important I I didn't know what it was you know I didn't know what I was talking about or what I was thinking about I just thought oh these are great and but sometimes that's how they work they kind of work their way in on that on that almost subconscious level but yeah self nature is mysteriously profound is is uh is just a kind of reminder i think that we just don't know uh, anything you know the intellect we're, we're, you know, as human beings we're we're kind of intellect is the thing that we've got you know that we we tend to forget this but as as animals on the african savanna when we were first just one of the animals out there you know competing for food and and trying to to not get eaten by something else that was our main the main trick we had was we could outthink other animals we couldn't uh, I guess I guess to a certain extent we can outrun them on distances. I remember because I, I got interested in this and I was reading that that the the other thing that humans being human beings have is we can't run as fast as other animals, but we can run longer than most other animals. So we had these two things, you know, <laughs> but the main one I think was still the intellect. So we could outthink other animals, and so the human beings as a species have invested a lot in in the intellect you know which makes perfect sense and and it's gone way beyond you know probably what our distant ancestors would have ever conceived of you know we could send a rocket to the moon and bring it back again and and that's you know that's pretty amazing what you can do with the intellect you can just kind of figure out you know how it works and and do that and accomplish something really incredible but because it's so incredibly useful, we forget that it's limited and that there are, at, there are areas that the intellect just can't get to. You know, there, and, and that those areas of experience and life and philosophy and whatever are, are important, but you just, the intellect, it just doesn't work in that area. And so 
you know, this is this is part of the reason that Buddhism is so weird because it's it's constantly pointing out the limitations of the intellect. So, so it says something that makes you know makes no sense at all, you know, initially because it's trying to 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 get beyond that. But but I should say this: this is something that Dogen was very adamant about because even in his time, often Buddhism, uh, the koans specifically, those ancient kind of weird stories, were put forth as being illogical. And Dogen was saying they're not illogical; they are logical, but they are. They are coming from a place that that logic kind of falls short of, but there is a there is a logic to them. They're not just simply non sequiturs. You can't just say any old dumb thing, and it's it's Buddhist wisdom, which on the internet you find that a lot of people you know, <laughs> figured out they figured out what Buddhist wisdom is, and they just write a bunch of non sequiturs and and impress people with that, but. That's not. That's not it. There, there actually, there actually is some logic to this stuff. Well, there's a. Uh, I think in the chapter on right thinking, um, I think that's where you do this. This comes up a couple places in the book. Uh, you describe a, you know, the aim of zazen is to, uh, or 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 the practice of uh, zazen is to think the thought of no thinking. Yeah. And in a way that 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 comes up for me in relationship to what you're talking about because it's it's you know we're doing something and but it's not it's 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 not thinking i mean there's this this place you point to with uh uh and dogen points to with zazen that is a place that it's not that thinking isn't arising Mm -hmm. in that place or thinking doesn't uh appear but it's it's no thinking yeah it's this yeah this whole thing has been it's it's really interesting to me and i hope it's interesting to readers too just this because i you know working with this for almost it's been almost 40 years since i first encountered this stuff and i'm still trying to work out what phrases like think the thought of no not thinking are are pointing to i mean i i feel like I, i i get it but there is this that non-thinking you you would sort of think that non-thinking is just kind of a blank void with nothing there um, but that's not the case it's it's actually it's actually fuller and um, more complete than anything you can think of that's what Dogen is trying to point out but as far as thought can frame it, or as part as far as words can frame it, it might as well be nothing. So that this is why you have all that stuff in Buddhism that that confuses people about the void. You know, that's how uh, people have stopped using that, but that's how the earlier translations would always always translate them shunyata as as the void. And um, in in a sense, that's not the worst. A way to translate it because it does have that kind of sense, but it's void in the sense that it it's there's nothing the intellect can can hang on to there. But that doesn't mean it's 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 um, it in itself is nothing as contrasted to something. It's it's yeah yeah. This is where you get with words. <laughs> right, right. 
I, I, I like the word the word free fall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, that's a good one. I hadn't heard that one. Yeah, but the the but in terms of ethics, um, you know, this this is a very powerful theme that you unpack in the in the book that all of the ethics, you know, whether it's the eightfold path or it's the uh, uh, precepts. Um, the refuges, it all of that comes out of this this place that you're talking mm-hmm. about. That and and that's a very compelling, you know, for some people maybe controversial because, you know, I mean it's it, it's terrifying for certainly middle America because uh, everyone thinks you have to have rules otherwise uh, we all <laughs> descend into chaos. Yeah. But yeah. but but. You're, you you make a very clear case that there's this juicy place that uh, Zazen is a gateway to, and out of that comes the entire ethical uh, framework that you're describing in the book. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Koto Sawaki, who was one of my teacher's teachers, uh, said all of... All of Buddhist philosophy is just a footnote to Zazen, which I really like that phrase because it's because it's true it all comes out of this practice but the practice itself you know if you get if you get into it it's the practice of of trying to sit still and do nothing for you know a a certain set period of time that's that's what that's what we do we sit and do nothing you know and then and then uh and, and most people, when they see that, they go, well, you're just sitting there doing nothing. What's the point? And you go, well, there's no point. Well, then I'm not going to do it. Okay. So it becomes it becomes a kind of game of trying to explain why it's important to do something that's pointless. You know, because I think there is an importance in doing something that's pointless because that's where you learn that all the points that you had for, for things that you do are, are a kind of a... You know, usually a kind of a trick. You just you're just trying to. You know, what's it? The there's a real famous um, a piece of work, and I think it's on. It, it, somebody's made it into a video on YouTube where Alan Watts is talking about school. You know, you go to first grade to get to second grade. You go to second grade to get to third grade. You know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and he kind of goes through the whole thing. And, and and at the end of it, you know, where are you? You you're, you're still everything that you're doing is in the service of some future goal and if you live your life always in the service of some future goal you're going to miss your life you know and that's why it's important to learn to do something that's pointless you're you're doing something that has no point it doesn't it's not trying to get you anywhere but this is the hardest when i try to teach uh, zazen meditation to people that's often the hardest thing to to teach it's Mm -hmm. it's uh there's a, a Gay and Wilson of, of all people did this cartoon. You know, he used to do cartoons for Playboy magazine and stuff. But he did this cartoon of two monks sitting side by side, and the older one is saying to the younger one, "Nothing happens next. This is it." <laughs> that's, that's that's what you know. I'm thinking, oh, he must have had some experience with with Zazen to come up with that cartoon because that's it. That's the that's that's it. Got it. So one of my favorite parts of the book is towards the end, you have like, I think, six chapters where you're doing, as you describe it, the first English language commentary 
on this letter that um, of, of Dogen's that we have a copy of, yeah. not the not the original, which your teacher translates the title of as um, uh, Buddhas Alone Together with Buddhas. Yeah. And it's um, I, I I really liked this this successive unpacking of this um, letter that you I think describe in the book as as um, uh, something we don't we don't know who he wrote Dogen wrote it to um, but but it's your in a, in a way, it seems to me that you're, you're trying to assert that this that this letter kind of is the pith of what Dogen had learned um, in his in his own practice. Yeah. So, so could you talk about this this uh, this series of chapters for a yeah. moment? Yeah, because it was it was a, a part I really worked uh, hard on, and I I actually did a, a podcast of it. Um, so before, well, during the time I was writing those chapters, I was also making a podcast about hmm. what I was writing about at the time. So there's a multi part podcast out there on my Hardcore Zen podcast with uh, with the commentary on that. But it's so Dogen wrote this uh, Shobo Genzo. You know, I, I know you know this, but maybe the listeners at home don't. Uh, you know, it's this uh, famous giant piece of Work in which he's trying to explain Buddhist philosophy as he understands it. And the contemporary versions of this, they've tried to kind of... He, he died before he finished it. He died when he was 53 or 54 years old, uh, probably from tuberculosis, and he hadn't finished Shobogenzo when he died. So it was up to later people to try to figure out what it was supposed to be. It's like, you know, one of those, the, the, I'm a big fan of Jimi Hendrix, and there's so many versions of Jimi Hendrix's final album out. out. And I always think about it as being that, because Hendrix was working on an album when he died. And, uh, and nobody to this day knows what that album was. You know, he, he supposedly said different things in interviews and whatnot, but nobody knows. And they've come out, I think, with four or five different iterations. <laughs> you know, this is my fanboy talking, but of, of, of Hendrix's final album. And that's kind of what you get with Shobogenzo. You're getting something similar to that, a similar sort of approach, because the guy died before he could finish it. So one of the things that is included in most complete versions of, of Shobogenzo Genzo is that chapter Buddhas alone together with Buddhas, and it's a very short chapter, and it's it's unfinished. We know it's unfinished because at the end of the chapter, at the end of each chapter of Shobo Genzo, either Dogen himself writes something. Um, this little, I think they call it a colophon. Um, you know, in, in academics, but it's something like saying this was written by me and blah, blah, blah. It, it's sort of Dogen's way of saying this is the complete version. This is the final version of this piece of writing. So he does that in every one that he finished. Well, he doesn't have one on this one, but what exists on the version that we have is something written by an anonymous person who doesn't identify him or herself. And it just says this was copied by me under the eaves on you know a certain date, which happens to be about fifty years after Dogen died. So it, you know the version we have is the version that some somebody found this piece of writing that Dogen had left behind fifty years after his death, and in order to preserve it as you did in those days, copied it by hand, and that, that's the version that that has persisted up till now. 
And I, it's it's a chapter. There's certain chapters of Shobogenzo that have attracted loads and loads of commentary. You know, like Bendowa is kind of a really famous one, and Genjo Koan, and you know, you don't need to know all of these. But there's certain there's certain ones that have attracted tons and tons of commentary. And I had. Ever since I first read Buddhas Alone Together with Buddhas, I thought that was one of the best pieces of writing. And when I decided to write about it for this book, I thought, well, I'll look at what the commentators have said about this one. And I couldn't find anything. Now, there, there may be some that exist in Japanese, I would assume so, because the, the, the scholars in, in Japan have kind of gone through everything. But um, I couldn't even find a Japanese one when I looked for it. But, you know, if I spent more time digging, I might have been able to come up with one. But there certainly isn't one in English. Um, and I thought that's a shame because it's because this piece of writing is unfinished and because, like I said, I, I, I called it Dogen's letter to himself, a lot of his... Uh, well, not a lot, but several of the chapters of Shobogenzo began their life as letters. So apparently Dogen would write letters to students who lived far away. And he would, if he wrote a good letter, it, it seems like he would hand copy it and keep a copy for himself. That's how Genjo Koan started out. That's, you know, one, that's probably his number one most famous piece of, of writing is Genjo Koan. And it started out as a letter. And this one reads all, all, a lot like Genjo Koan. It, sound, it sort of reads, to me at least, like he's writing to somebody. Um, and he's, he, since he didn't finish it, it doesn't have a lot of the literary flourishes which make other writings of his so difficult. You know, it, it seems to be, seems to me to be much more direct, you know, because it seems to me that he's just trying to get the points down on paper, you know, before he forgets them. And then later on, maybe he'll embellish it and make it sound poetic and, and lovely. But right now he's just trying to get, you know, the points down. And, uh, and it was really, that one's been, I wrote about it first in my book, Sit Down and Shut Up, which came out in 2007. I have a chapter about the Buddhas alone. I think it, I think it called it um, Bad, ha- Bad Hair Day or something. <laughs> I forget. Uh, I, and I reused that uh, analogy in this book too, but it's much more detailed. And I just, I don't know, I, I, I've, like that piece of writing and I just thought somebody should write a commentary about this and if if then it might as well be me <laughs> you know because because uh, nobody else is going to do it I'm going to have to do it but um, yeah I just think it's real it's real direct and I think I spent like five chapters um, it's not that long the, the original piece is not that long but I did something that uh, that an editor that editors have done to me, which is I took one section that appears at the beginning and I shifted it to the end because to me it works better at, at, in the end than in the beginning. So apologies to Dogen for for doing that uh, to it. Well, you don't know he wouldn't have done it himself. <laughs> <laughs> but but the. Uh, um... Uh, the the there's several uh, in- interesting things about it, but your um, your assertion that that this is this is like him trying to polish, I mean the the impression I had reading your commentary. Number one is that this is like no, and the whole book is like this. This is like no other Buddhist commentary, 
I've ever read. And I realized, oh, that's exactly what you're, you're doing a commentary on the precepts. You're doing a commentary on the Noble Eightfold Path. You're doing a comment in this book, I mean, uh, The Other Side of Nothing. And your commentaries, because I hadn't really thought of your previous books as commentaries exactly, because commentaries tend to be so dry yeah. and, and, and not, um, not personalized. So yeah. you use you use this personalized style to comment on these texts that most of us would find utterly opaque yeah. without 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 the kind of background that you're able to provide, and you provide it through your own uh, responses to the text. Yeah, and that's that's unusual. And I, and I just, you know, I, I, it just really struck me, especially when I was reading these, these five or six chapters um, on this particular uh, um, piece, that that's, 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 all, that's all of the reading, that's all of the writing that I've read of, about, that you've done about Buddhism is it's actually commentaries, but it's this very accessible style of commentary. Is there anyone else that you know of, whether it was old ancient Japanese or ancient, I don't know, uh, folks in India or something like that, that would write a commentary in the style that you do? Yeah, I don't, I don't know of anybody doing that that way because there's certain there's a certain way you're supposed to write a commentary, and and I I think. Um, yeah, I think I think it's kind of unusual to do it the way the way I've been doing it. I, I never really thought about it as, as commentaries either myself, but it's it's kind of I, I, I you know, but that's not to denigrate the the other ways of doing it. And and I do I do feel there's some people who are like uh, my friend. Uh, he goes by the name Shozan Jack Haubner. Mm-hmm. Um, We've interviewed him on the show. Mm-hmm. We've interviewed him on this on our podcast. Oh, good. Yeah, good. A yeah. Times. I was hoping you did. Yeah, he he writes in a in a similar style. He's a Rinzai, you know, in the Rinzai lineage yeah. of Zen, and I, I'm in the Soto lineage of Zen. So there's a little bit of a difference, but uh, but there's that. You know, I used Kosho Uchiyama's commentaries a lot, and he was pretty uh, he was pretty down to earth as well. Uh, Dining Katagiri's uh, the the books that they've come out because Katagiri Roshi never actually wrote a book I mean, that's a that's a lot of what you get uh, in this in this stream of things is, is people who never actually wrote a book but somebody put together a book later of their of their um, talks and things yeah. and i think the ones they've come out with for with category roshi are really good especially that um i keep getting the title wrong um this moment is the universe think is the title i caught myself several times in because i referenced it a bunch in the other side of nothing but i had to when i did the corrections to the book i had to fix like four places where i'd gotten that title wrong isn't that <laughs> isn't I, he the, isn't he the source of the phrase the other side of side of nothing no that's actually colbin chino that's okay uh, my first and he's another one uh colbin never wrote anything down and tim my first teacher was colbin's student and uh, apparently he Tim Tim has told me that Coben said you you shouldn't put out a book of, of my stuff until after I'm dead and he died so in, in 2002 or something like that around then so since then a couple of books have come out of his 
uh, stuff. And it's also very um, down-to-earth and accessible. But interestingly enough, in, in the case of Coben, you, you can go on YouTube and there's a few recordings of Coben's talks, and he talks really slowly. And even though you know, I'm really, I really think he's one of the greatest Zen teachers, even I have difficulty um, sitting through <laughs> a recording. I probably, if I'd been there at the time, it would have been fine. But just sitting through a recording of, of Coben's uh, talks is is terrible because he's like it's like two words per minute or something. You know, I'm exaggerating, <laughs> but he's really, really slow. So it's kind of nice uh, that they've come out with it in a book form because um, you know probably these lectures are an hour long and they they take up two pages because he talks so slowly. <laughs> So, 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 but uh, what you've just said, Rem, um, for some reason, it stimulated the the idea that commentaries used to be for monastics only. Yeah, and you're and you're not writing for monastics only, and I guess Kobanchino wasn't talking to uh, uh, monastics only, right? So yeah. Do you think that's a source of 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 this? Because because you're you're framing it like it sounds like this. I don't know, trend is too strong a term, but, but this direction that goes in a different, that is, that is not full of intellectualized illusions that, that, um, that most non-monastics would have no clue what they're talking about. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If you're, if you're writing for monastics, you can assume a certain uh, amount of knowledge, a certain amount of, you know, study has been done it's like somebody uh, giving a writing a book for physics majors as opposed to somebody writing a book on physics for for lay people you know you'd have a, a whole different mm-hmm. thing and and it's not necessarily that the concepts in the book written for lay people are dumbed down but, but you you can't assume that that background knowledge and it's just kind of the same thing if you're if you're writing for monastics you know, you can you can assume that they're practicing too. That's the other thing I don't assume mm. about an mm. audience. I, I I assume that most of them aren't. You know, and and I I keep trying to encourage them. But I, I, I put this put out this book called Zen Wrapped in Karma Dipped in Chocolate, and several people <laughs> pointed out that they got really angry at this certain line I put in there, which was, uh, "I hope you're doing zazen because if you're not, there's no." There's no sense in you reading this book or something to that effect, you know, and that uh, and that made people upset. Um, but I, but I felt like there's certain things you can understand if you have. It doesn't necessarily have to be zazen. But there's certain things you can understand if you have a practice like that, and certain ones that that are more difficult. But it's you know the caveat to that is like I said, it doesn't have to be zazen. And I find like musicians and athletes often have. Uh, an understanding of practice that that people who don't do those sorts of things don't don't understand either and it's it it's, can be quite similar in in a lot of ways to the zen understanding it's kind of been interesting because a few athletes uh, famous athletes i can't pull up any names off the top of my head but lately have been writing about meditation which i find interesting because there's a there's definitely um, a parallel 
in just in terms of doing something. You know, that's one of the things about zazen that gets lost a lot of times. People think it's an intellectual exercise, but it's actually as much of a physical exercise. You know, that's at least you know the way we do it. You're you're trying to sit still. You're not doing anything movement-wise, in terms of movement, you're not doing anything. But the, the physical practice of sitting still has has a lot to do with what happens during zazen. And if and and the, the, the posture you take is also significant. You can't just you can't just sit still any old way. You have to sit still in a in a particular way, which of course can be modified according to people of different body types and whatnot, but still you have to kind of have to be strict about it. Um, and that's I don't know, I went on a tangent there. I've forgotten what the question was. <laughs> that's okay. No, you you responded yeah. um, okay, uh, appropriately. So, so. <laughs> so I, hey, I, I wanted to uh, uh, switch to a, a, another question that came up for me that, so I think it's your penultimate chapter uh no choice uh, is uh very interesting about this the it gets into the kind of the notion of free will in the sense that thoughts arise uh the the various formations of our personality arise and uh come up and disappear through causes and conditions so i mean there, there's this deep intuition that you get into much more in the book that there's no permanent self there's no real self and uh but it's riding on something deeper that that might be recognizable as a capital s self depending on your tradition but it's something that's not not this this stuff that's all moving around and changing and yet this is a book about ethics and a book about practice so how do you how do you um reconcile those two and this I've, I've seen this argument come up like this is it's interesting because i think you've mentioned sam harris a couple of times in some of your books and he, he talks about there's no free will but you still have moral agency yeah. and, and so i'm just curious how you how you um uh square that circle yeah square that circle yeah. because because it's it's a there's no choice and there's no free will in a sense and yet there's moral agency. Yeah. So how do you how do you account for that? It's it's a tough one because uh, it, you know for years that whole free will versus determinism argument, I just was like, oh shut up, you know. Whenever it, it came up, <laughs> I was like, I just didn't have any interest in it. And then kind of recently, I got interested in it, and I got interested in the way Buddhism presents it because Buddhism. It comes at it in a slightly different way, but it's it's still a real similar argument because they have the the idea of karma. So usually the way the free will versus determinism argument is presented in Buddhism is if everything is determined by your your karma, you know. So the the philosophy of karma, when taken to its ultimate uh, conclusion, would tend to suggest that you have no choice at all you know you're just you're just kind of this karma machine and you're just going to do what you do and and a lot of the a lot of the people in the advaita vedanta tradition will put it that way but just the other day i came across this thing by ramana maharshi in which he he, he sounds like a zen a zen teacher because he's he first lays out this in no uncertain terms idea that 
that there is no free will at all. The, the questioner is saying, look, I understand that maybe in broad generalizations, there's no such thing as free will, but, and, and I guess he's got a fan in his hand as he's talking to Ramana Maharshi. He says, look, I'm putting this fan down on the floor. Are you telling me that even the fact that I put this fan down on the floor right now, you know, not, you know, to say nothing about my career trajectory or who I marry or some of these sort of big things. You're saying that even that is is determined by my karma? And Ramana Maharshi says, yes, that is that is also determined by your karma. You have no, no choice in that. And the guy kind of presses him further and, and he ends up saying something like, well, as long as you see yourself as an individual, then you do have free choice, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, so this is the, this is the, the kind of contradiction that you run up against and the the most one of my favorite buddhist stories of all time because i heard it probably within the first few months that i first started studying buddhism and it still perplexes me is the is the it's called hyakujo's fox you know and it's this this story maybe maybe you guys are familiar with it but it's um the story of uh, well, how do you make it in a short version? This there's this guy who keeps showing up at uh, when Hyakujo, this is Zen master Hyakujo, gives a lecture, and and then he disappears after, but he's not one of the monks. And then one day he lingers, and then he says to Hyakujo, "Look, I got a problem. I I am not what I'm not this old man that you see before me. I'm, I'm actually a wild fox." And I used to be the Zen master on this mountain, and somebody said, is a Zen master subject to cause and effect? Essentially, does a Zen master have free will? And he says, he told the student, I'm not subject to cause and effect. And then for 500 lifetimes, he's he's reborn as a wild fox, because a fox is a symbol of something deceptive. Um, And he says, he says, can you... Can you help me out? Can you say something? You know, put a new answer in this into this question. And Hakujo says, cause and effect is as clear as the noonday sun, or something like that. You know, he says cause and effect is is perfectly clear. And uh, and he says thank you. And it's just this weird story, right? And there's a, there's another whole uh, uh, ending to the story, the little the little punchline, which I don't even want to go into here, but that that makes it even weirder. But it's it's asking: Is there cause and effect, uh, or 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 is everything subject to cause and effect? Which means, do you have free will? And it's a real interesting question because uh, it seems to be at the moment, at this moment, there is free will. This is this is the way Nishijima Roshi, my teacher, would put it. He would say, "Well, if you have a pearl balanced on the edge of a razor, it might fall to the right or to the left, um, but." You know, it, it's got it's got that much free will. And his other answer to the question was, of course, I have free will. If somebody sits a plate of food in front of me, I can choose to eat it or not eat it. <laughs> you know, which at first I thought, well, that's a that's the dumb thing to say. <laughs> you know, he used to say this. I used to hear him give this answer over and over again to people, and I'd go, ah, that one again. But I think I think that's sort of. The crux of it, you, you, there is a certain, the, to a certain degree, who you are and what you encounter might be determined. But then in that, in that fleeting moment of the present, you have a, a certain amount of agency there. Um, 
not a lot, probably much less than we normally think we do. But in the, within the circumstances that we find ourselves in, both circumstances externally and internally, there is, a, there is just a little bit of agency. But that, that little bit of agency actually can make a huge difference. And that's, that's what we forget. Maybe this goes back to the whole non-duality thing, because if everything is connected, then that little tiny bit of agency of you know, whether to take a bite of food or not take a bite of food can determine a lot of what happens next. So that's why I think we have these ethical precepts because we we want to be able to make do the right thing when those moments come up. And I also think this is why we have practices like zazen because if you're if you're just full of thoughts uh, you're less likely to be able to respond to the situation appropriately if there's too much going on in your in your brain. And so we try to eliminate a lot of that by doing you know these practices that are thinking the thought of non-thinking and kind of trying to get into this more intuitive area. And in doing so, maybe when the moment comes up and you have a chance to act, it becomes a little easier to to take that little bit of agency that you have. Yeah, I mean, if you say, yeah, if you say that the, I mean, the whole framework of the language is, uh, you know, causes a question. I got well, who 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 is taking that yeah. moment? Who who has free will? Yeah, like who's There's another question right there? Right, like who's the one who's uh, availing themselves of this instantaneous moment or the what is it the Shana, uh, that that smallest piece of uh, yeah, time, yeah. that that uh, who is it that grabs that moment? Yeah, that 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 concept is real interesting too. You brought up the Shana. Um, what is it? Do, Dogen has a calculation somewhere in Shogogenzo where he says there's six billion four hundred thousand. He, he puts a number on how many Shanas there are in a in a day. And it's a Buddhist concept of the shortest possible time, the time in which action really happens. You know, this kind of so short it's measureless. And then, and then, you know, the physicists have come up with Planck time, which is yeah. kind of a similar concept, and they try to kind of determine it by it has to do with the movements of, of atoms or something. I forget uh, how it works, but it's it's a remarkably similar concept. You know, this idea of the shortest possible time. So is that the moment that we, uh, uh, in which we have a, a fleeting moment of free will? Yeah, yeah, just this being, you know, this moment. <laughs> there's supposed to be, I don't know how many, that's one of the ways of understanding a kashana is there's like 64,000 kashanas in the snap of a finger or something like that. I've forgotten how many. I said 64,000 off the top of my head, but that's probably totally wrong. But there's this idea of this, uh, of this incredibly short period of time. Yeah, it's just you know for I, this whole paradox is a great paradox, and uh, you know because I I don't know that we're going to resolve it in this uh, in this conversation, but uh, uh, keep trying. Yeah, it's it, 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 it's a it's a bit of a mystery because uh, there is a sense. I mean, and this this is what I get from the the way you describe ethics in the book is that. When we are completely natural, the right thing to do will arise in the moment. 
That's that's yeah, that's the idea. That's, that's just nature. And so any anything that we're doing, I mean, it's like ethics becomes or vows become a practice likened to zazen, which is you know if I fight against the mechanical factors in myself that would have me reify self in the form of stealing from another person, I'm doing the work of zazen because I'm I'm not giving energy to that particular way of seeing the world and so each ethical act that I take makes me less and less uh, an identified being or uh, less and less a person and more more of a uh, an expression of nature yeah that's the idea and that's what uh, my teacher always talked about in terms of intuition but um, then again intuition is, is this funny word that's sometimes used in ways you you might think the intuitive response is like I want to punch that guy, you know. That's not that's that's actually more your karma talking uh, than actual intuition. So it, I think you have to be kind of careful with concepts like that. In the fourth way tr- tradition that we're um, f- familiar with, it that would be seen as um, just reactive, you know. Yeah. And and um, so this idea of this tiniest possible moment where something else can happen before the reaction happens that to me that that is a meaningful concept that helps me clarify so if i'm um fully identified with reactivity i don't get that whatever you want to call it intuitive flash uh as being possible to activate yeah yeah it is impo- and, and probably for, for most people, it is impossible. You know, it, it, you mm-hmm. kind of got to work on it a lot. So, you know, going back to that Ramana Maharshi quote, it's sort of like for most people, it is. It, there's nothing you can you can do about it. But if you if you work with it, I, I think there is a way to, um, to have some agency. At least that's you know, and even even. Uh, I think even Sam Harris says this, and I think Nisargadatta uh, Maharaj said it too, that you have to behave as if you have free will, you know. Because the other way of, of acting is it becomes more of an excuse for bad behavior. Like, oh, my, you know. Just, yeah, I can do anything because nothing matters, right? Yeah, yeah. Or I don't have any agency in it, so I might as well do, you know. But I'm like, ah, that's not. I don't like that version. <laughs> yeah, the, the way I kind of resolve it is uh, I use an analogy from physics because I've had some training in physics, and that's, you know, there are certain behaviors, statistical behaviors, they're called stochastic, That, and a good example is the, uh, uh, the radioactive decay of an atom. Mm-hmm. If you give me 100 atoms, physics can tell you the distribution of the decay. You know, like uh, after a certain half-life, this number will be uh, decayed, this number won't be. But it can't tell you nothing about what an individual atom will do. Yeah, yeah. And so in the same sense, I guess I have a sense that, you know, I can look at my behaviors as this sort of probability density of habits and tendencies. And you can look statistically at my life and say, yes, he, he will tend to do this in this situation. But at any given moment, you can't say what I'll do. 
Yeah, that's a really good way to think of it, I think. Yeah. And so I, I, that, that spontaneity, you know, you can call it grace, or you can call it uh, life, or you can call it uh, the uh, uh, mind in Kashana or something like that. But it's, it's, it, it's something that I guess I feel is uh, real there. And um, that's, that's kind of where I go to to kind of to resolve this question. But it still sits as a paradox. Well, yeah, and, and it is. And, and the, the paradoxes are, are something interesting because uh, Dogen is full of contradictory statements. And I think uh, one of the mistakes some, some earlier translators of Dogen did was to try to smooth out the contradictions, thinking that this must be you know, an artifact of, of translation or something. You know, they, they try to fix it. But no, he's he's just contradictory, and I think that's the way you you have to be because things there are there are paradoxes. There, that's part of the the what I was talking about. The intellect kind of demands that things be one way or the other because that's that's the only way the intellect can work with it. You know, if it's if it's this way or that way, but things are often two contradictory ways at once and can't be resolved. But even in those cases, you kind of got to choose one you know you kind of got to accept that everything is contradictory and then do something thank you well um so i want to talk about uh and get you to respond to what you're doing in the final chapter of the human project oh. and yeah. uh, <laughs> and the other side of nothing you know you you sort of start off by saying well i'm going to be a naughty boy here and speculate which buddhists aren't supposed to do well, and uh, <laughs> And, uh, and then you say, you know, um, for a lot of my life, I thought that human beings were nature's greatest mistake. We just mess everything up, right? But then this chapter seems to, it has a different take. Yeah. You, you, you report a shift for yourself that you're sharing with your audience. And I'm wondering if you, you'll, you could elucidate that a bit because it is different. It does, you, you end up, your final three-word sentence uh, is uh, different than I've read in any of your other books. Okay. So, um, uh, uh, could you talk about that? For a bit? Yeah, I feel embarrassed in ending the book the way I did when I did the audio book, and I came to that ending. I don't know if maybe I shouldn't spoiler alert it, and maybe I shouldn't even say what it is. <laughs> I had to read it out for the audio book, and I'm like, <laughs> that was what it felt right. And and yeah, it's. It, you know, this this book had this weird genesis in which I spent months trying, and this is going to sound, you know, dopey, I suppose, but I spent months trying to write a Zen book about UFOs because I thought there might be something in there, hmm. you know, and, I, and something I've, I'm not a UFO uh, nut myself, but it's something I've all, since I was a little kid, I've been fascinated with this idea. It just seems to me, like everybody says, there must be some sort of something like human beings out there in the cosmos somewhere and, and you know the idea that they they might be um, here already looking at us and we just don't realize it or understand what we're seeing that's I think fascinating so I tried to write this book about that and I I feel upon reflection that the final chapter because I, I finally just I couldn't get anywhere with that UFO book and I, I just set it aside but the only thing that's really left in in the book as it came out from what I had been working on is that final chapter. It's this, it's this idea hmm. that that um, I think 
if you if you kind of take the implications of the Buddhist ethical systems a system to their what seems to me at least to be their logical conclusion, if we could get to a place where human beings in general, even if they had no even if most of us didn't have any great awakening experiences or something, but we just accepted the idea that anything we do to harm somebody else is something we do to harm ourselves, then then that's you know that then there's we could go anywhere because we have this incredible intellectual capacity. We could realize every dream that human humanity has ever had because we do have the capacity to figure out incredible things and if we just stopped screwing with each other so much and 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 trying to get ahead and and you know if we could put our own egos aside for a moment and just get down to the business at hand there's there's um you know we could we could create a, 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 a you know the paradise that that everybody has wanted to create since time immemorial you know it just takes uh, learning to be ethical to each other, and like I said in the book, it's not—it's—it's it's actually discouraged within the Buddhist tradition to speculate. You know, that's—that's that's kind of—it's um, kind of one of the things that frustrates people about about Buddhism or Buddhist teachers is they'll—I'm often asked to speculate. They'll—they'll they'll say, "Well, what a, what about if you know you know, and then X Y Z happens? What would you do then?" And I have to go, well, if I want to give you the, the straight-up Buddhist answer, the answer is, I don't know. I don't know because that's not what's happening. I don't know what I would do in that situation. I can make a guess, but it's not, it's not, um, it's just a guess, even when I'm guessing about myself. So I don't know. But I, I decided uh, in the last chapter of the book just to kind of let loose and indulge myself in guessing what, you know, what would happen without mm-hmm. trying to put too much detail and write a science fiction novel. But, you know, saying, well, you know, what kind of a, a place would we get to if we if we just could all act ethically, you know, and we don't even have to be all saints, you know, just just. Uh, just we all tried a bit harder and uh and it just strikes me as as being amazing what we can do and how worthwhile it would be for people in general to to pursue ethics you know how why this is important you know just understanding that you know whatever whatever unethical thing you do is gonna is gonna like I said, to hit you know, it's like hitting yourself in the face. And if you understand that, you just don't do it anymore. And then if you don't do it anymore, you, you can you can go anywhere. And that's you know, and and the idea is the the other idea that I put forth in in that is I, I kind of feel, and this is again speculation that why is why does humanity exist? And maybe humanity exists because there's something within the universe that once us to exist that once once there to be an animal species who can think for itself in a deep way and kind of figure stuff out and i, I put this in the book but it, it started off as kind of a dumb speculation of about the the end of the dinosaurs you know the dinosaurs supposedly as far as we understand right now uh, their age of the age of the dinosaurs ended because a meteor struck the earth and at the time that the dinosaurs existed, there was nothing, as far as we know, living on the Earth that could have done anything about that. 
But now there is, you know, at least potentially. We don't know for sure. But at least potentially there is a species on Earth which could protect the planet in, in, the, in the event of something like that. And that's pretty amazing, you know. And, and, and it just, you know, I started speculating about that, about, well, you know, if we could do that, where else could we, we go with it? And that's, you know, that's what that chapter is, is getting into. Well, well, thank you. I mean, one of the things that struck me, and you sort of glancingly touched on it in what you just said, is, is that, you know, you, you say, I suspect that we, referring to humanity, that we are a kind of project that the universe is working on. <laughs> and as you were saying that, and you said, uh, we're talking about the UFO thing, I'm wondering if, if uh, it's kind of like uh, the movie 2001, where, uh, you know, the... Uh, the apes uh, 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 acting like apes on the savanna in Africa, you know, get uh, zapped by the uh, by, by the uh, um, aliens, and 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 that that's um, one way to think about how our speculation about UFOs and extraterrestrials is is an instantiation of this idea that we're, we're a project, that yeah. there's something greater than us that, that, that um, has created this, this um, experiment, if you will. And, yeah. And that's interesting. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to think about, and like I say, it's, it's still just in the area of speculation, but I, I think it's an interesting speculation. Like maybe you don't, you know, we, we think about aliens. Maybe we don't need aliens. We just need to think of what what would aliens do and then do that. You know, yeah. that could be, <laughs> be one way. Of <laughs> I like it. I like it. Alien mind. Cultivating alien yeah. mind. <laughs> well, it's, you know, one thing that's, you know, tying back to kind of the, the some of the refrains uh, throughout the book about ethics, that even when we're, you know, having a bad hair day, we're, you know, but you're sitting zazen. You're still a Buddha, and yeah. even even in the world that we live in, people doing bad things to each other, it's still the Buddha manifesting. And the, yeah, it is. And there, and so there's a way. I guess what I appreciated about the last chapter and, and your riff on that is that it's so fashionable to be negative or to think of humans as the uh, pestilence on the uh, face of the planet. And every time I read something about some, uh, you know, animal species going extinct, you know, that, that those thoughts kind of come up. And yet, you know, much to, as you're saying about in the chapter of no choice, I mean, as a human being uh, with a personality on this planet, we're as subject to the designs of nature as anything else, and yeah. and we are we are a project of nature, and what we do is natural. It, it can't not be natural because it is yeah. natural, and so it's it. But it does feel like it's in process. <laughs> yeah, some some of the choices out there don't seem to be quite as well, um, Yeah, I mean, it seems generous. like it could be more harmonious, uh, or it could be, you know... Well, it certainly could, yeah. I mean, there's all, there's all sorts of stuff that goes on all the time, and, and it's easy to get pessimistic about humanity. One, one thing that turned me around from a... You know, I was a very pessimistic person, 
when I was young. But then Nishijima Roshi, my teacher in Japan, had this very optimistic view of where humanity was going. And I, at first I was like, oh, you're crazy, you know. But then I realized he, he's a Japanese person who lived through World War II in Japan, you know. And, and for somebody to be able to, to see that level of devastation to one's own country, uh, you know, brought on, uh, he, he would be, be the first to say that brought on by themselves, you know, that he, would, he, he said that all the time. Um, and then still be optimistic about humanity, that's, uh, that's pretty, uh, that was pretty inspiring, you know, that, that he, could, he could be still optimistic about humanity's future after kind of witnessing what he'd witnessed. So I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe he's right. Maybe, maybe things are uh, going on a steadily better trajectory, but maybe the time scales at which it's happening are too, too big for an individual to really comprehend, you know. Yeah, but I, I, I appreciate the optimism because I think the optimism sort of, has the effect of inspiring in any one of us, you know, the, uh, you know, a purposefulness in practicing. You, you, maybe you can change uh, that one, that one shortest period of time. Right, right. I mean, if I, yeah. I mean, that's, it, it's a call to practice. Why do I practice? Why, why, if I sit in meditation in whatever form I do it, um, you know, the, that optimism to me is a, a message that it makes a difference. It actually, it, it contributes something to yeah. the whole that makes things, as you say in the book several times, a little bit better. I think, yeah, I think the practice does, and, and, and people get this sense of, uh, people often complain that meditation is a selfish practice. You know, you're just doing it to improve yourself. How does that, you know, shouldn't you be out there working for the good of all mankind? But I, I think actually meditation practice is a way to work for the good of all mankind because you're working on on yourself. And, and if we work on ourselves as individuals, then collectively that has an impact. And, and even, even the little impact that you might have from working on yourself uh, can spread you know, in ways that you can't you can't anticipate just just the fact that you're a little bit more steady and a little bit less reactive um, can have an influence on everybody that you encounter and those people have an influence on other people they encounter and it goes on and on and it, it can be a, it can really make an impact without without that impact necessarily becoming noticeable to the individual who who is having the impact you know you just don't you don't notice the good you're doing but you are doing some good and and i think accepting that that is uh, is really useful thank you well um we're drawing to the yeah, conclusion of our time with you today but um but i want to know um what you would say to the question is it um can i be optimistic or should i be pessimistic about you doing another project that we get to read and talk to you about? I, I think optimistic. I mean, I'm always working on something. I put a lot of energy into the... I, I started doing a YouTube channel uh, uh, four years ago, I guess now. And mm -hmm. I put a lot of energy into that lately, and I, I find that really an interesting, an interesting project to work on. But I'm always going to be writing books... 
Uh, I haven't. I, I, I always do this thing once I finish a book where I deliberately stop writing for a little while because I think that's kind of important to do. And so I haven't. I haven't started working on a, a follow-up to the to the current book yet. But I find that once it starts, once it starts happening, it just sort of comes out all at once. At least that seems to be the way it works for me. I don't know if it works for other writers that way, but I'm sure there'll be another book. And yeah, lots more of those YouTube videos and stuff. Yeah, I, I was looking forward to the uh, UFO book. Uh, oh. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I started. I, I went back and started seeing what I could do with that, and, and I may. I may yet do. But so, I, I have to be careful because I don't want to be too woo woo. Yeah. Well, I, I'm about. To, I'm, I'm close. I'm about three years older than you, and so uh, when I was growing up. There was this whole class of UFO literature that I, as a kid, would obsess over, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know uh, all the all the famous cases like Betty and Barney Hill, you know the abduction yeah. case, and and the books, the photos, and everything like that. My brother and dad would go to a science fiction store, and they had a UFO section, and I'd go get books out of that. So I have that uh, <laughs> that person in there that. Uh, <laughs> Just loves it wants UFOs. This, this book of yours. Yeah, wants this book. Want, I, I want the UFOs to come take me away. I'll work on it just for you. Yeah, I probably read some of the same books because they're you know they tend to stay in circulation for a while. But yeah, I know I know all the. My favorite story is the one about the uh, this guy in Wisconsin, the guy in his fifties, and he, his story is the UFO came and descended on his house, and these guys got out of it and gave him. I think four or five little pancakes and then <laughs> zipped off again. And and on the surface it sounds like the hokiest, you know, story you ever heard. But there's there's film people interviewed this guy at the time and there's film of him and he I'm sure he comes off as absolutely sincere and he's not making this up, you know. He really had this experience of these this you know, I, I'm I'm convinced he wasn't he wasn't lying. So what happened? You know, it's such a weird story. Yeah. You know, and and he had the pancakes to prove it. You know, they <laughs> <laughs> gave them to some researcher, and they 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 did some analysis, and they found their their buckwheat and whatever. They weren't. You know, there wasn't anything spectacular to them. But um, I don't think he made up that story. Yeah. You know. So something happened to that guy. What was it? <laughs> you know. That's <laughs> well, maybe uh, maybe he was doing a lot of sazen. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> so on that note, uh, we we want to thank you yeah. a lot, Brad. Yeah, this has been a fun, a very fun conversation. I really, really appreciated the other side of nothing, the Zen ethics of time, space, and being. You uh, you bring ethics and non-duality together in really interesting ways and I think that's uh, a project of uh, uh, you being of service so thanks thank you yeah thanks for joining us on the mystical positivist you have been listening to the mystical positivist this is your host Stuart Goodnick this week on the show we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Zen teacher Brad Warner author of the other side of nothing the Zen ethics of time space and being published this year by New World Library. Drawing on decades of Zen practice, he traces the interlocking relationship between Zen metaphysics and ethics, showing how a true understanding of reality and the ultimate unity of all things instills in us a sense of responsibility for the welfare of all beings. 
When we realize that our feeling of separateness from others is illusory, we have no desire to harm any creature. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussions of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.